You're listening to Cornerstone Conversations, a podcast by Cornerstone in Fort Worth, Texas. My name is Jeremy McNair. I'm the worship pastor at Cornerstone, and I'm joined, as always, by our lead pastor, Bobby Harrell. At Cornerstone, we're going through a very particular and wonderful series looking at the chronological life of Jesus Christ as he fulfilled his earthly ministry. What we found is going through the stories of how Jesus lived his life helps us as Christ followers to learn how to live our lives. With these Cornerstone Conversations comes a wonderful opportunity for you as our listeners to join in and engage in the conversation yourself. We would love for you to be a part of what happens here. So if you have any questions, comments, or any feedback that you think would be helpful to our conversations, we would love for you to text us at 817-809-3040. We'll take all of the best and most applicable comments, compile them together, and use that as helpful outlines and contributions to future Cornerstone Conversations. We are actually recording remotely in Latin America right now. As is often the case, we do a lot of international travel for missions work overseas and humanitarian projects all across the world. It's such a wonderful blessing that we get to participate with you. And we can't wait to continue these Cornerstone Conversations together. Okay, so Bobby, we started the new season of Cornerstone Conversations recently. And what we've done in our Sunday morning services now is we've been kind of tracking the very early stories of Jesus' earthly ministry. I guess the main goal for today's episode is we kind of want to go back and just reiterate some of the points that we've kind of already covered in a Sunday morning setting. We want to go back and maybe go into a little bit more detail or even from a fresh perspective, some of those early moments in Jesus' ministry. And then as we continue in these conversations and future episodes, what we're going to do is kind of fill in some of the blanks that we can't quite cover on a Sunday morning, hopefully to ramp all the way to the crucifixion and resurrection week to align well with our calendar year for Easter. Yeah, as we look ahead at the calendar, there are not that many weeks from now to Easter. So obviously you and I have already had several discussions about we have too much gospel, too much Jesus story to tell, yeah. not enough weeks to tell it. So we've made a conscious decision in the sermon calendar. Mm-hmm. Let's tell the story of how God became king. It is the story the gospels are trying to tell. There are a lot of other subplots happening yeah, and they usually get more attention than Jesus being king. For example, we will not have time between now and Easter to talk about the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, yeah. and this is, I mean, the Beatitudes, this is some of the most famous teaching so of Jesus. The, the bulkiest content that we have of so Jesus' ministry. Maybe we need to extract that and make mm-hmm. that its own sermon series after Easter sometime. Sure. Yeah. There are so many parables. Yeah. We just couldn't cover we'll, them. We'll call it Christological time travel. We'll just go back. We're on our own timeline. Now. Correct. But yeah. let's go to Easter. Let's talk about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and celebrate And then let's maybe then go back and do a little deeper dive in some areas, whether they're the Sermon on the Mount, maybe a series on the parables. Mm -hmm. There's a whole section in the Gospels of miracles. Yeah. You couldn't teach all of the miracles in a couple of weeks. I mean, and not faithfully, not really giving it justice to what, what it needs. Maybe we could have a few weeks of just. You know, what is the point of the miracles? Why the miracles? Yeah, what are the miracles pointing to? Yes, what is Jesus trying to say? It wasn't just accidental. He didn't just go around with a a wand, you know, just performing acts and miracles and just for attention's sake. 
And it seems very random. Who was the recipient of a miracle? I mean, is this like a lottery draw? Who gets it? Because it's an opponent of Jesus, who's the president of the synagogue. It's a Roman soldier. It's a leper. It's a man at the pool of Bethesda who's been there yeah. almost four decades. I mean, how do you decide? who gets the miracle. There's hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people yep. moving around in the streets who need Jesus. So maybe that's a whole nother thing we can talk about later. And I think for now, let's try to keep the conversation moving towards ultimately in Jerusalem, where this will end mm -hmm. with the climax of the gospels, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We'll celebrate Easter and we'll go back and do a little deeper dive. So when we started the series, we said we would move between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as following a loose timeline, but yeah. not, not too strictly. So far, we've been very true to what the timeline looked like. Yeah. Coming out of Christmas, we went to the, the Magi story. Mm -hmm. And again, the Magi story is centered around Jesus being proclaimed king. Yeah. And we likened it to like the Electoral College certifying mm -hmm. or the Secretary of State certifying election. It's not official until it's official. Yeah. And when the Magi come, this is kind of a, an official Eastern recognition that king makers have bowed before a king and said, we acknowledge he is the king that God was going to send. And that kind of sets the tone then for the story the Gospels want to tell. We see an adolescent Jesus in the temple, lost at the feast, separated from Joseph and Mary. And the conversation turns to father's house father's business, an adolescent Jesus yeah. saying, I'm already mission focused. Mm -hmm. The story moves then decades ahead. Yeah. The next Jesus you see is 30 year old ish Jesus mm -hmm. coming out to John the Baptist. Yeah. It's telling the story of how Galilean disciples of John and Judean disciples of John are meeting at the Jordan river and they're hearing the message of John that says, prepare yourselves, repent, because the Messiah is coming. Yeah. And this is where you see Jesus submitting to John's leadership, which I don't think is talked about very often. You actually spoke about this in your sermon. Yeah. Where that very interesting conversation is, you know, John's looking at Jesus and saying, if you are who I really think you are, then you need to be baptizing me, not right. the other way around. Right. Yeah. And Jesus says, no, I am God, but I'm coming now in the form of a man. And I'm going to show the world that you can submit to leadership. Even the scripture says Jesus learned obedience. Yeah. He suffered. He was a human. And in this becomes an incredible role model that this is what honors the Father. We're going to bring in the new covenant now. Yeah. Yeah. And the sign of the new covenant is baptism. And again, John's baptism was different than ours. Mm -hmm. It's not talked about much. They are being baptized as a sign of repentance that they're ready to receive God's King, the Messiah who's come to earth. They're waiting for him to be revealed. Yeah. Our baptism is still an act of obedience in the new covenant. It is. But let me say it this way. It'd be easy to understand. We say very different things at baptism than John said. Right. We say, hi, John, have you received Jesus Christ as your savior? Mm -hmm. Okay, upon your profession and faith, you're publicly declaring your allegiance to Jesus and your faith in Jesus. We baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, yeah, and Spirit. Yeah. 
buried in the it's likeness. All rooted in the picture of the gospel. Picture and yeah. specifically buried in likeness of his death. Yeah. Raised to walk in newness of yes. Correct. So we are looking from a different viewpoint, yeah, viewpoint. Yeah. on the other side of the cross and the resurrection. And we're saying we do this in the new covenant to follow their pattern of allegiance yeah. and proclaim to the world that I'm a Christ follower. Now, I think things get really interesting when you get to the book of John in particular, mm -hmm. because Matthew and Luke are telling a Christmas story. Yeah. They're telling a Magi story. Mark is like the gospel for speed readers. Mm -hmm. We do cliff notes. Sure. He moves. It's, it's the shortest one. He moves incredibly fast. Well, you see this even with you know the picture of Jesus' first public sermon. I think Luke goes into a significant amount of detail. And Mark, I think, summarizes the whole thing in one verse. It's, and that's Mark. Yeah. So for our listeners right now, you know, if you wanted to know the story of Jesus condensed, maybe you have ADD and you just need like, the, give me the short version. Yeah. Go to the book of Mark. Yeah. It's the short version. Okay. John kind of followed a different track. Well, John, John has a very different purpose in writing. You know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all really want you to know different nuances of who Jesus was as a man. John's purpose is very different. He wanted you to know who Jesus was as God. So let me ask, how did you come to that conclusion? How do you know that's what John is saying? Oh, well, I mean, there's so many beautiful pictures all throughout his writing that really point to the deity of Christ. But even in the opening lines, even from chapter 1, verse 1, you see this incredible parallel of Jesus's entrance into the world being a, I don't want to say a metaphor, but being kind of a direct reference to the creation of all of humanity, the creation of the world and the universe. I'm like you, I'm struggling to find the right word. There is definitely a comparison being made. Yeah. A parallel? It's definitely paralleled. Yeah. And I, even a few weeks ago when I preached the sermon on the water turning into wine at the wedding. So that's the, the wedding. first miracle. The first public miracle, okay. yeah. What I did was I took some of the verses from John and Genesis and put them together, and it, they're almost very difficult to discern which one's coming from Genesis 1 and what's coming from John 1. So I'll read those again right now, just because I think it's a really fun illustration. And I won't tell you where John is and where Genesis is. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. All things were created through him. And apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. In him was life and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness and yet the darkness did not overcome it. Okay, that's incredibly clever what you just did. I was traveling out of the country when you preached this sermon. Yeah. If you have gen any of Genesis 1 memorized and any of John 1 memorized, you just shuffled the deck. It's you all just alternated back and forth between John and Genesis. Yeah. I think it's really clever the way that John did this because he's trying to give you a very intentional and purposeful look back to the creation account. Because again, he's setting up Jesus not just as the man who they walked with and lived with, but he's setting up Jesus to be presented as the God that they serve. So Jesus is the God of creation. Yes. And he was present from the beginning and he's present here now. And he's trying to make a very purposeful statement in this. And so then, you know, we, we just talked a minute ago that the miracles are purposeful. When we get to his first public miracle in 
the wedding at Cana. When you think about what a wedding is, it's this covenant union of two people coming together in relationship, promising themselves one to another to be joined together in a relationship for eternity. And so then when John opens up his entire writing with the same kind of language of this covenantal entrance into the world, you know, and paralleling it to... He's the fulfillment he's, of that covenant. Uh, uh, he's right. going to bring in the, the new covenant. And, and even when you think about creation, what, what is creation? It's God fulfilling this cosmological mission. Exactly. To, to unify himself with his people, to say, you are my people and I want to be in union with you. I want to have relationship with you. And so he creates the world. And then humanity is really good at just blowing that up. And so they do. And God continues. The, I mean, the entire Old Testament story is it's just this continued cycle of God being faithful to his people and his people continuously being unfaithful. And it just goes around and around and around and around. But the story remains the same. God wants to be in union with his people. So then John opens up his story and says, remember the promise from the beginning and opening pages of the word. From the beginning of time and creation, God wants to be in union with his people. And there's no greater picture of that than him sending himself to be in the presence of his people. And so then for Jesus to make his very first miracle in this moment of you know, a, a picture of a covenant. Two, two people, two people committing their lives together, together. Committing together in relationship. It's not accidental. We often, when we're trying to explain that the Bible is framed by a series of covenants and we have to explain covenant, what it is, you know, as we preach and do work around the world, we try to give them an example. Covenant is like a marriage. Yeah. And, we, and we tell them when, you know, when the Israel is at Mount Sinai, it's intentionally framed like you would a marriage ceremony. Yeah. God says, I'll take you. Will you take me? Mm -hmm. You know, and we'll agree to commit ourselves to yeah, each other. Consent one to another. And right. Submission. Yeah. There is love. I love you. Do you love me? Yeah. I love you enough to commit to you. Do you love me enough to make me your God right. and be faithful to me? And that same type of language is woven throughout the scripture where when Israel breaks their covenant with God throughout the, as you said, this cycle of the mm -hmm. Old Testament yeah. where they are constantly breaking the covenant, it is not a surprise then that the prophets use the language, you have committed adultery yeah, or you have committed fornication with idols. Mm -hmm. And that is just, I mean, that's just like Old Testament 101 language. Yeah. Because it is such a, it's a love commitment I to mean, one I another. I mean, think about it. it often throughout scripture, the church is referred to as the bride, the bride of, Christ. of Christ. Right. And he lays down his life for the one he loves. Yeah. So when John opens, he's basically saying to us, I want to tell you a Jesus story, but don't forget the person I'm talking about is God. Is God. Is God. And yeah. what the story I'm about to tell you is as powerful and significant as the story Moses told in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, yeah. where a omnipotent God stepped out onto nothing and with his spoken word brought into existence the entire universe, all that we know in the material world, and even humanity, light, and life. Yeah. And again, those are the words you read a minute ago when you wove right. the stories together. John opens with, he is the life, he is the light of humanity. Yeah, re remember the person who created light? Well, now that light lives within you as life. Correct. That, that's incredible. And, and we're not making this up. John, near, I mean, it's not at the very end of his book, but you know, 
about two thirds of the way in, he makes a statement, says Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples. They're not written here, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And he gives you his whole mission statement. The reason why I'm writing is so you can believe that Jesus is God. And, and so he starts differently. He knows he's going to end there. So he starts with the summary. I'm going to tell you a story of Jesus, but he's really God. Yeah. And then he tells you he came into his own and his own received him not. Yep. Now, not everybody, because a few did receive him and as many as did receive him. He gave them the right to be God's children. God's children. Yeah. And we're not talking about born of Abrahamic DNA or born of the will of men. We're talking about born from above, mm -hmm. a new birth yeah. from above. Now, that's significant because what he's saying in chapter one and what you read from the latter part of John, yeah. it's kind of the sandwich, you know, those are the bread on each side mm -hmm. saying, here's the summary of what I'm going to say. Now I'm going to say it. Yeah. Okay, now here's the summary of what I said. Right. It's a very clever way to write this, to reinforce yeah, this your is thesis. Where it, academically, we call it a chiasm. Right. A chiastic structure where everything points to this midpoint as being yeah. the main point. Yeah, so now let's see if we can deal with those opening chapters quickly. You, in your sermon, talked about the first miracle. Mm -hmm. And it's really this coming out. These scenes are all scenes of, I've been here for 30 years. Yeah living in obscurity. I'm now being presented as a Galilean disciple of John. Mm -hmm. I'm aligning myself with the ministry and message of John. Yeah. His ministry and message was repent for the kingdom of heaven it's is here. here. Here now. Yeah. And now I'm going to be revealed as the fulfillment of the kingdom of God coming on earth. I'm mm -hmm. about to inaugurate the kingdom of God. Yeah. Now there's some very serious theological implications with this. Yeah. Many of the Protestant traditions, especially I would say the Baptist groups, mm -hmm. the different flavors of Baptists, fell into the teachings of John Darby and uh, C.I. Schofield, his disciple, and really got wrapped up in a, a kind of a Johnny-come-lately theological position of dispensationalism. Mm -hmm. And that's just a bunch of mumbo-jumbo that says this. The people who follow that believe that the kingdom of God comes at the end of the eschatological age. Right. And that God will basically blow everything up, start over. The kingdom of God comes at the end of that, the That age. is the summation. Yeah, that this is like the, the climactic moment yeah. at the end. And the Bible, I mean, these Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are telling a very different story. Mm -hmm. They are clearly not the, yeah. in line with Darby and Schofield and dispensational teachings. They are saying the kingdom of God is now, and now being first century. Right. So the kingdom of God was when John the Baptist and Jesus were preaching. They're saying it's here, it's now. It's coming, get ready, here it is. Mm -hmm. So as you read the Gospels, you should really be paying attention to language like John came preaching the gospel of the kingdom or the kingdom of God. Jesus came then preaching the gospel of the kingdom. The message of Jesus and John is clearly the kingdom of God is here. It's right now. So the kingdom of God is not something that's coming for us living right now mm -hmm. in this contemporary era, we're not looking for the kingdom of God to come. The kingdom of God has already come on earth. Now let's keep defining these terms. Yeah. When we say the kingdom of God, 
We're saying the same thing as the kingdom of heaven. Because they are used fairly interchangeably. And, they, and it depends on who's writing. And to what audience. Yeah. Because the Jewish audience did not like to articulate the name of God. They mm -hmm. thought it was disrespectful. Yeah. They won't even spell it out when writing. And so they switched the term to the Jewish audience, kingdom of heaven, which mm -hmm. was more accessible term for them. Yeah. It means the same thing. Kingdom means rule. It, we're talking about the rule of God being established on earth. That's why this series is how God became king. Yeah. And when John and Jesus are saying the kingdom of God is right here now, about to be revealed, we're saying that Jesus Christ is God coming in human form to reestablish the rule of God on earth. Yeah. To reestablish what was lost in Genesis chapter 3 when humanity fell into sin and basically abdicated, gave away the authority that God had invested in Adam and Eve yeah. and the first humans. Right. When they rebelled against God and they yielded to Satan, they lost something that has been lost for thousands of years. Yeah. God's rule on planet Earth. It's been reestablished now. Mm -hmm. Now, when I say that, the thinking may be, well, if God's in control, then why war? Why sickness? Why? Well, the kingdom of God has been initiated. Let me find some synonyms. Inaugurated. The kingdom of God has been launched. Mm -hmm. It has not come to maturity yet. Yeah. And we talk about this more when we get to the parables. This is why Jesus would say parables like the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. Yeah. Now that's the smallest of seeds, but when it's planted, it makes a plant. It becomes like a bush. Mm -hmm. It keeps growing. And, and in his parable, he said it becomes like a tree and the birds can come and lodge in the branches. Yeah. The, the image you're supposed to get is that the kingdom of God is going to be launched as the smallest and most insignificant of things, mm -hmm. but just give it time and it's going to spread and grow and glo flourish. globally. Yeah, right. And now we, 2023 years later, you know, living late now in history, we are the recipients of a more mature kingdom. Mm -hmm. I think I can safely say we're experiencing a more mature kingdom than the world has ever known with each passing year now. Yeah. It should be expanding. It should be God, growing. God continues to reveal himself and he continues to, you know, we shouldn't expect that the faith has just remained stagnant and for it, thousands of years. And we can look at demographics and see that what Jesus said is true. Yeah. We get to India, there are believers there. Mm -hmm. We get to China, there are believers there. You go to Europe, there are believers there. You go to Australia, South America. I mean, wherever you go, you're finding the kingdom of God is touching these lands. Yeah. And there are disciples there, there are believers there, and they are trying to expand even further the kingdom of God because they're on the mission of Jesus. Mm -hmm. From the first miracle, the story moves and Jesus has shown that he is a gracious host. A wedding celebration is about to end in disappointment Yeah. and Jesus saves the night. Yeah. You know, one thing that I love about the way that he saves the wedding though, is it's almost a soft launch into his public ministry. And I hadn't really considered this until, you know, recent studies, but the wedding party, as far as, you know, the general public didn't know that Jesus did the miracle. Really, we only see the servants at the wedding knowing what Jesus did. 
because then when the brand, you know, feast master comes out and says, you know, this wine is incredible. He goes to the groom and says, this wine's incredible. You saved the and, best for last. Right. And Jesus has never really given public recognition of that moment. It's just something that the servants witness. And I do kind of love that when Jesus first presented his miraculous nature, that it was to the lowly, to the common, to, yeah. you know, that he didn't make this grand, enormous statement to launch it all. But I just thought that was an interesting statement. And, and that's a good observation because that's when we do talk about the individual miracles he worked, Yeah, this will be a theme. Mm -hmm. He will help people in their distress, whether it's demon possession, sickness, mm -hmm. paralysis, you know, bleeding disorders, whatever. Yeah. He is going to touch lives and help them. But a common thread through these is he may say things to people like, don't tell anybody what I did. Mm -hmm. Jesus does not want his ministry to be a ministry that's just a populist movement of likes and shares. And it's very clear because when you look at John specifically, all through you know, John chapters 1 through about 11, he says to people, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And it's not until what we celebrate now as Palm Sunday, this triumphal entry moment where the people declare him as Hosanna, that he finally says, the hour has come. Yeah. It's like he's got That's this- That's very intentional in the book of John. He's being very purposefully slow to reveal himself. Right. It's not that he's, you know, just blocked off any sign of his, you know, wonder, but he's being very intentional at the rate that he's doing Correct. it. Correct. And it's all very purposeful because he doesn't obviously want to just, you know, blow up culturally. And then he didn't and hire his time not being you know yeah. appropriate. He didn't go out and say, "Okay, I need to hire a social media specialist. I need a publicist. I need, I need a, a publicist. Manager. I need a stylist. Let's just blitz the news. Let's make this happen." Yeah, exactly. That wasn't his model at all. In fact, he was very cautious to tell people, "Like, hey, be cautious. With Keep this. this on the down low. Yeah, the kingdom is going to come, but let it develop. Yeah, maybe it would be good to say it this way, Jeremy. He wanted to bring it in through." discipleship through relational discipleship mm -hmm. is the way the kingdom would move. Well, I think he knew, to, I mean, obviously he knew that when the ball really started rolling, it was going to go quick. Yeah. When you raise somebody from the dead, like the all, word's out. All of a sudden, things are going to move very quickly. And when things move very quickly, then, you know, we're looking at his last week yeah. on earth. Yeah. So John takes the story from the wedding. Like you said, let's call it soft launch then. Mm -hmm. I like that term. And you'll see Jesus begin to step it up slowly. Yeah. He's going to go down to Jerusalem for mm -hmm. a feast. And which is very common. Feasts all the time, feast festivals. I imagine that Jesus and his disciples went to a lot of feasts and festivals. Correct. Because that's just culturally. Some different. of them are named, some of them are not named. But that is kind of it's a motivator for a lot of their travels. Correct. The big three mm -hmm. feasts, the males are required. I mean, if you're going to follow their Bible, the Old Testament, right, right. The, the males must appear in Jerusalem three times a year at the temple. And so at Passover, now this is the feast where lambs mm -hmm. is centered around the sacrifice of a lamb. And so Jesus goes up to Jerusalem at the feast of Passover and he sees the situation. Mm -hmm. We're introduced again to the word temple. Temple in biblical Eastern language is where God meets with man. Okay. That's important. Because when we say temple to an American, you think building. Yeah. A temple can be a building, mm -hmm. 
but the larger meaning is God meets with man somewhere. Yeah, which really, and I know this is a tangent now, but it's the same problem that we have now with, you know, I'm going to church versus being at the church. And what's happened is we've created a very uh, commercialized version, you know, where you go and you are a consumer of church, not a participant in the church. Right. It's, it's not same. that you are the church, you're going, going to, to church. Going to the church, which is why a lot of churches uh, will, will even on their church sign say the campus of yeah. this church or, right. you know, the location of this church. There's a church, you know, nearby actually that specifically says that. it says the campus of this church. Right. And I actually really kind of like that model. Not that we're, you know, changing anything right now. Just, I, I think that's clever. It helps the understanding. It's, yeah, to clearly define the terms. And the same thing exists with this temple language. Well, when I, even when I was a child, I noticed that a lot of, of course, my tradition's Baptist, but a lot of Baptist churches were something Baptist temple, mm -hmm. which is even more confusing. Yeah. Because you're thinking, oh, there's the Baptist temple over there. Yeah. See, it's on the corner of First Street and Avenue A, yeah. the Baptist temple. Well, or even, and again, I'm really not speaking specifically about any church in particular, but you know, other churches will say like, you know, Temple Methodist Church or Tabernacle Baptist it's Church. It's so confusing. Or whatever. And we're using terms so interchangeably that it's it's not very clear what it's we're actually- It's not correct usage, really. Yeah, speaking about. Because temple is where God meets with someone. Yeah. And from the first century where Jesus launches the kingdom forward, you have to be really careful with how you use the word temple. And let me, let me set this up. Jesus walks into the temple building in mm -hmm. Jerusalem. Yeah. He drives all the sheep out, turns over all the money changers tables. Mm -hmm. He's made a whip and he's, I mean, nobody is standing up to him. They are running for the hills. He is an aggressive Jesus being pictured. And what John is doing is John is portraying Jesus as saying, the kingdom of God is here. These sacrifices are no longer in play. Mm -hmm. Something is changing. This building you call the temple is not the temple. Yeah. And now it's a lot of wordplay happening because Jesus starts referring to himself as temple. Mm -hmm. I am where God meets with man. Yeah. I am temple. And then, and then later, don't you know that you are at the temple? Temple. It comes in yeah. the book of Corinthians, right? So from Christ forward, there is an intentional biblical reframing that's happening that says, stop thinking of temple as a building. Mm -hmm. When God was a man, that was temple. Yeah. And so when Jesus uses temple and father's house moving forward, he's talking about God with man, yeah. and you have to really look at the context to see what's happening. What's definitely not happening is they're not referring to a building being built or destroyed. Jesus talking about his own body, his own person. Right. Now, the big point of the temple cleansing is Jesus is being portrayed by John as declaring that he's in charge. Mm -hmm. I am here. I am temple. I know about Father's house. And you have taken what you consider God's house, my father's house, and you've turned it into a merchant house. And in the Greek, the language works much better as a wordplay. Sure. Father's house against merchant's house. Mm -hmm. You've made this just another commercial enterprise. God is not being honored here. God does not live in your building. He has not lived in your building yeah. since the days of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Zerubbabel. He never did inhabit this building like he did Solomon's temple. Mm -hmm. Things have changed. 
And if you have come here to meet God, if you've come here to encounter temple, I'm here now. Yeah. I am temple. Destroy this temple. And in three days, I'll raise it up again. Right. And then John gives us a commentary, parenthetical commentary that says, Jesus spoke not of the building, but of his own body. Yeah, just, just in case if you missed this. Just in case you're not yeah. tracking temple language now. And this is, I tried to introduce this to our church. This is often a misread context where you see Jesus whipping people and kicking over the tables and having a bit of a tantrum, not yeah. tantrum, but, but a bit aggressive of a yeah. moment yeah. and saying, I'm so disgusted with what you think honors God mm -hmm. is actually dishonoring God. Yeah. You've made a mockery of temple and worship of God. God is in your midst. Mm -hmm. I am here. I am in charge. Well, the, the temple authorities rush right out to confront him. Yeah. And what follows is not Jesus' victory in the temple. It becomes a verbal challenge where Jesus loses the challenge. And that's a little bit lost on us in our English Bibles. Mm -hmm. But John has laid this out as this rhetorical challenge for authority. And when they say, listen, if you're going to claim to be in charge, listen, we're in charge. Mm -hmm. We've been in charge for hundreds of years here. We're the temple authorities. Aren't you like a carpenter from Galilee, mm -hmm. peasant? And you come up here with no education to say you're in charge of the temple? How dare you? Yeah. What sign do you show us? In other words, back it up. Mm -hmm. Well, Jesus' statement to back up his actions was, destroy the temple and in three days I'll raise it up. Yeah. When Jesus said that, they're hearing that as rambling. Mm -hmm. This temple took 46 years to build in millions of dollars. Yeah. Shekels, whatever. If it were destroyed, which is, you know, insulting us to even talk about it being destroyed. Mm -hmm. This is the centerpiece of our religion. You could be killed just for talking like this. Yeah. But if it were to be destroyed, you're going to build it? Yeah. Who are you? Yeah. I, I don't want to be... In three days? Right. I, I don't want to be an apologist for the wrong side. But at the same time, like, I would imagine that I would be just as skeptical. Well, it's a mind-blowing encounter. You know, right. God's here? Seriously? Yeah. And you're God. Like, you're, like, you're in charge? Like this because what they were expecting was not what they got. Correct. And so again, not to try to you know be too much of a devil's advocate, but at the same time, like I can't imagine myself being very quick because I'm a skeptical person, you know. I and I want things to run well and smoothly. And, right. You know, I, someone comes out of nowhere and says, "I'm here and I'm in charge." And, and it's just not it, it. Jesus didn't at all match the expectations that they had. Correct. Which caused a lot of problems for them. So basically, after that exchange, it goes something like this: paraphrase, ha. Exactly. Mm -hmm. You don't really have a good answer, do you? Yeah. Run along. Everybody set your tables back yeah, up. Gather, back to business. Gather let's... up the sheep. Yeah. You know, let's get started again. Get this guy out of here. He's shamed. Mm -hmm. And we know that because John's having to make apology for him. Yeah. And we know that because of what follows. Now we get to chapter three, which is a very famous chapter in John. Right. Nicodemus. John 3.16, one of the most famous, probably the most famous verse in the Bible. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it comes as a result of what followed that night. Mm -hmm. That night, Israel sends her champion, the one they called the teacher of Israel. He is from a very famous military hero family. Top that with he is now as the descendant of this famous family, the Ben-Gurion family. Nicodemus has gone to Pharisee school. 
Yeah. He has been discipled and he is a religious scholar of all religious scholars for Israel. If Israel could produce the ultimate Jew, this is him. This is the one. And so now Israel's champion comes to have a conversation with God's champion. And just in case you didn't get the message in the temple this afternoon, I've come privately now to reinforce that you are not welcome here and you are not in charge. Mm. And just because I like a good debate, I have come as the teacher of Israel to shame you some more and say, don't do this again. Okay. What you did today will get you killed. Do not do, don't try this again. And he opens John chapter three with incredible, what sounds like to us in English as praise. Yeah. We, we know you're a teacher from God. Rabbi. Now that's a certified religious teacher. Yeah. Jesus is, in their eyes is not really a certified religious teacher. He's a crackpot. Yeah. He's a peasant who just showed up and caused this incredible scene in the middle of our Passover feast. Mm -hmm. So when he starts this way, he's dripping with sarcasm. Yeah. Rabbi, we know you're, yeah, surely you are the one sent from God. You're going to set us all straight. You know, we know nothing, you know, everything. So I've come to have a conversation with you. Uh, Jesus kind of shuts that down very quickly. Well, and again, this is all... It's not necessarily from John's perspective, but it's from John's retelling. And what's the point of John's account? It's to prove that Jesus is not just the teacher, but He's God, God himself. He's and so God. for him to retell this story as Nicodemus saying, we know you're a teacher from God. And know? Jesus probably has just a grin and a twinkle in his eye. Yeah. And he's probably, I mean, I'm putting thoughts into Jesus' head. If you only knew. Yeah. If you only knew who yeah. you were talking Nicodemus, you claim to represent God. You are sitting at the table with him yeah. and you cannot recognize it. Yeah. Nicodemus, let me put it this way. The reason you can't see it is because in order to see the kingdom of God, you have to be born again. Yeah. And that's how Jesus starts the conversation. You will not see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Mm -hmm. And so it becomes a wonderful conversation that follows. Without telling the whole conversation, let's just say this, that Jesus says, I know you're not convinced yet, but you need a birth from above, a spiritual birth. Yeah. You can't control God, what he's doing, where he's doing it, and how he's doing it. Mm -hmm. You think you've got God all figured out and categorized, and he fits in all of your nice categories. Mm -hmm. God does not operate that way. It's like the wind blowing. You can't control it. Yeah. God is doing what God is doing. And it's your job to come in line with what God's doing, not try to control the wind. And so he says, basically, I think of this, it's, you're not convinced yet, but as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up. One day you're going to see this. And when you see it, you're going to be convinced. And he's speaking of the crucifixion. Yeah. And we'll talk more about this and we get to Easter and happily you and I can already spoiler alert, proclaim that when Nicodemus did see this, yeah, uh, in our opinion, he does become a believer. His story ends very well. Very well. And many of the chief priests believed in the end. Mm -hmm. And again, I want to be a little sympathetic and not, as you said, overly critical because everything they knew about God mm -hmm. was being corrected. Yeah. They were getting whole new lenses. Yeah. And when you experience a radical change in what you believe in our own context, Jeremy, as we've tried to reform some of our tradition, mm -hmm. we've had the same kind of moments. Yeah. We've watched God's people 
that are wonderful followers of Jesus go through some of the same struggles with, wait, what I thought I knew was right is not right, and I've got to readjust my theology. Yeah. It's not easy. Mm-hmm. It's definitely not easy. And so after he's rejected, and I guess the summary of John 2 and 3 is he's rejected in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Came into his own. Now, John already told you that in chapter one. He's going to come into his own, his own receive him not. Yeah. Let me show you what that looks like. Jesus in Jerusalem is a classic example at the temple and John 3 with Nicodemus of what rejection and shame looks like. And Jesus took the shame, took the rejection and said, I understand that is part of my mission to be shamed and to be rejected. And he just absorbed that for us. Mm -hmm. But then we have a really striking contrast now in chapter four. Jesus tells the disciples, listen, we need to go through Samaria. I must go through Samaria. Which to them is just unthinkable. Unthinkable. No, there's a lot of roads. we do that? There's a lot of ways to get to Galilee without going through Samaria. We go around it like people normally do who are Jews. And the story in John 4 is, I think, one of the most beautiful stories in the Bible. We call it the woman at the well story where Jesus says, I must go through Samaria. And now knowing the story, you realize that Jesus' statement, it's a cosmological statement again. Mm -hmm. It's a grand, gigantic statement that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He came to launch the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God will not be exclusively for Abrahamic DNA. As a matter of fact, they've just rejected Jesus. They've rejected God in his own temple, so to speak, in his own city. And so Jesus says, okay, let's move away from Jerusalem and see what the reception looks like. Well, the reception looks great. The further he gets from Jerusalem, the more he's received, the less the arguments, the less the confrontation. And I think the big point in Samaria, I think there's several actually. One, the Jewish disciples are going to realize that they're not on mission. The Jewish disciples and the people of Samaria are going to realize that the kingdom of God is for everyone. Yeah, that now it's not just a Jewish thing. When the story ends, John has the people... The citizens of the town of Sychar in Samaria coming to Jesus, Mm -hmm. asking him to stay. They want to know more. Jesus stays for two days with them. We would say leading them to faith. But John has the story ending with those people who are outsiders. They're outside the covenants to Israel. They're outcasts. John has those people saying, we've seen with our eyes. We've heard with our own ears now. And here is our testimony. We believe that Jesus, you are the savior of the world, not the savior of the Jews, not the savior of Abraham's people, the savior of the world. Wow. Because you have come even to save us who are the outcasts. Yeah. So John has given you this contrast between a chapter two, three rejection of Jesus by the Jews and a chapter four acceptance of Jesus by the Samaritans. Mm -hmm. And that's profound because even in his birth stories, you have the gospel writers saying he will be a light to the Gentiles and the savior of Israel, the hope of Israel. And Jesus makes a statement with the woman at the well for salvation is from the Jews, Mm -hmm. not exclusive to the Jews, not in the Jews. You don't have to be Jewish to be saved. Book of Galatians refutes that. Yeah. Jesus is saying some origination with it originates with this Old Testament Abrahamic family. Yeah, because God promised in those covenants again 
that through the family of Abraham, again at Sinai, through the body of Israel, again to David, through the family of David, mm -hmm. I will send my king, my savior to the earth. Yeah. And now it has happened. And he is from the Jews, but not exclusively for the Jews. What a great thought. What a great miracle in itself. Here you and I are. You're a Cuban-American. Yeah. I'm from European and whatever descent, all mixed up. Yeah. Living in America, sitting in Costa Rica, sharing the gospel with people. In our meeting today, the people look like everything. Yeah, they're even here, just in, in Costa Rica, there's just a variety of backgrounds and originations, colors and types and all the, if you could, and, and every bit of variation exists, even within, in the room today, in, in the remote jungles of Costa Rica. And what is the message we're here to share? That Jesus is the savior of the world. Yeah. And, and the same savior for you and for you and for you, the same, for the Jews and for the Gentiles. Exactly. And, and even when you look at the story of the woman at the well, you know, it, it all kind of culminates with the statement that many Samaritans then came to know and believe in Jesus. That's right. Because of what she went out and proclaimed. Because right. there was mission attached to the miracle. You know, the miracle was, again, Jesus is, I don't want to say he's quiet about it, but he's only doing it with one person. You know, it's, he is quiet about it. It's, it, it's personal. It's, it's a one-on-one -on -one interaction that, you know, that, that's miraculous. But then it's the reaction to the miracle that really causes ripples. And I think we underplay our involvement in the miraculous process. You know, let God do what he's supposed to do. We used to say it this way, Jeremy, the greatest miracle that God does is when he saves a sinner. Yeah. It's when he enlightens us and we come to put our faith and enter into that relationship with him personally. Mm -hmm. That transformation and indwelling of the spirit and all that happens in that moment. What a great miracle that is. Yeah. But then what is our response? is our response to keep it a quiet moment between us and God, which is sadly and unfortunately the norm. The norm, yeah. Or do we follow the model of this Samaritan woman who went out running away saying, come see what this man has done, what he's told me. Could he be the Messiah? And then people come to know the Messiah because of her reaction to this miraculous See, and moment. I think the contrast you bring up is the contrast near the end. Now, for the whole thing, the disciples have not been here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they just show up and they're like, is anyone hungry? And they go, it's, really, it's really the story. They come back and they say, you it, know, yeah, have you eaten lunch yet? What's humorous though is John is one of them. Yeah. He's the one writing the story now. Yeah. And he's saying, and at this point, the disciples show up with hamburgers and tacos yeah. and burritos. He's one of them. Yeah. And he's making even fun of himself, if you would. Yeah. He's basically saying, now we showed up. We totally missed it. And we're totally clueless yeah. as to what's happening. Yeah. We're only concerned with meeting our material needs for today. Mm -hmm. We forgot that we were supposed to be on a spiritual mission. Yeah. Because this is still very early in the whole disciple trek. Since John's making fun of him and all of them, we don't really get it yet. Yeah. We don't really even understand what Jesus has called us to. In a way, there's even undertones of this woman understands it more than Correct. we do. And there sits the empty water pot, mm -hmm. a symbol that she has kind of left one life yeah. and has now gone on mission to her people. Yeah, in proclamation of a new life. Yeah. So I think you end these first chapters with this revealing of Jesus and the kingdom of God on earth. You see people rejecting it. Yeah. particularly the Jews, you see another group now entering the kingdom of God by faith in Jesus Christ. They're half Jews, they're Samaritans. Yeah. And now John has set a great 
bit of the tone for the story, what you should expect in the coming chapters. Because now we're going to Galilee. You should expect. We get far away from Jerusalem. People will accept Jesus. You get to Jerusalem, we will have conflict. Mm -hmm. That tone has now been set. What you expect is clueless disciples to remain clueless for a little while longer. Yeah. And you'll see the evolution of the understanding of the disciples until Peter will proclaim ultimately, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Ding, ding, ding. I got it. But is it a journey to get there? Yes. For sure. And then he'll kind of backslide several times after that. Yeah. But I think John has set a great tone for us. Yeah. We're going to enter into really the ministry centers down Galilee, Mm -hmm. the north part. And it's going to be a lot of parables. Yeah. A lot of signs. And a lot of miracles. Yeah. Right. And so we'll talk about that now in the coming weeks. You've got a good stage set for the story of Jesus. And as that story continues, and as we continue to develop our sermons and our conversations around the grand story and narrative of Jesus Christ, we're going to keep on having these podcast episodes. We love having the opportunity to do a little bit further of a deep dive into the story of Jesus, really examining his life and applying the wonder of his ministry to the implications that it has in our lives even now today. As you're listening to these Cornerstone Conversations, again, we want you to be a participant in them. So please text us with your comments at 817-809-3040. We can't wait to continue studying the life of Christ together. And we also can't wait to continue these Cornerstone Conversations with you.